mic here, so. We are uh, going to continue to light our Advent candle. If you have your copy of Scripture, though, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Turn my monitors completely off, Scott. Make sure monitors are off. Turn my monitors off if they're on. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to be. But before we do that, we want to light our fourth Advent candle. Our fourth Advent candle. It's December 23rd. So this morning, we will relight the first three candles of the Advent which the first candle was a candle of hope. Then we lit the candle of peace. Then we lit the candle of joy. And now we light the fourth candle of Advent. This candle will be the candle of love. Jesus demonstrated self-giving love in his ministry as the good shepherd. Advent is a time for kindness, for thinking of others, and for sharing with others. It is a time to love as God loved us by giving us his most precious gift. As God is love, let us be love also. In the book of Deuteronomy, you find these words. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy ten seventeen through 19. From the Gospel of John, we hear this. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John thirteen thirty four through 35. So this morning we will light the love candle as well as the first three candles. Let us pray. Lord, teach us to love. May we always remember to put you first as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That we may know your love and that we may show your love in our lives. As we prepare for our celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, may you fill our hearts with love for the world that all may know your love and the one whom you have sent, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And talk about, this morning, the root of Jesse. Some people may hear that kind of language and wonder, well, 
What do you, what does that mean? You know, what, it, what does it mean, the root of Jesse? If we've not, you know, read through the scripture, we may not understand what that's even talking about. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to see that from Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here we are, two days before Christmas, and I would guess that in most homes your tree is decorated, the stockings are hung from the chimney with care, and there's probably some excitement in the house. I never did understand the poem that says, no creatures were stirring, not even a mouse. I somehow find that doubtful if you have kids in your house. I don't think the creatures ever stop stirring as we get closer and closer to Christmas. I guess what I'm saying is that the closer that we get for Christmas, the more excited kids seem to get. But I'm glad that we stopped to take time out to calm ourselves and focus on the true meaning of Christmas. Most likely you still have preparations to make for Christmas, whether it be a meal or whatever it might be for us We will uh, get up on Christmas morning, and we'll pile into our car, and we will drive to Missouri. However, it's always good to take some time out and worship together to remember why we celebrate Christmas. And, And this is why I would love to see you all at our Christmas Eve service tomorrow night, and why I'm thankful that you're here today, because it's good to take time out and calm our mind and remember why it is we celebrate Christmas. As we continue our study in Old Testament Christmas, we see in this passage of Scripture a reminder for us why it is that we celebrate Christmas. And we see who Jesus is and what he came to do that first Christmas. And as we take the time to look at this passage, my prayer is that our heart will be stirred in us with a renewed wonder and gratitude for the birth of Jesus Christ and for our salvation. Let me give you some background quickly 
quickly as I can. We started this series in Genesis chapter 3 where we saw the curse that was handed down. We noticed that those verses, in those verses, that God promised that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent would strike his heel. And we said that it was a display that, yes, Jesus would come, and yes, it would appear that Satan had won when Jesus dies on the cross, but instead, it was God's ultimate victory. Because the shed blood of Christ is what purchases our redemption and crushes the head of the serpent so that sin and Satan no longer have dominion over us. And then we fast forward all the way to Isaiah chapter 7 and for a number of chapters we see O King Ahaz and, and his plan to rescue Judah from the opposition that has come from the combination of the king of Syria which is the, to the north and the king of Israel. Ahaz has had a plan to go to Assyria because Assyria was this great empire and the idea was that if, if, uh, if they were threatened by the northern kingdom and by their ally Syria then, then we will have to go bigger and better and so we go to Assyria and we ally ourselves with them so we can defend ourselves. However, God had sent Isaiah the prophet to tell Ahaz not to make an alliance with Assyria because God would be their defense, and Assyria is not the answer to their problem. Ahaz was not listening, and so God in his mercy in Isaiah 7 tells Ahaz uh, to, to ask for a sign. Any sign that he wants. And God will do it to prove that God means what he says, that Ahaz did not need an alliance with Assyria. And Ahaz responds with basically this, I will not put God to the test and ask for a miracle. Now, as we said, that sure sounded great and made him sound pious, but it was really irreligious piety. I love what John Calvin said about that verse. He said, when God offers you a sign, then you need a sign. So in other words, there was nothing pious about Ahaz refusing to ask God for a sign that God had already offered to give him in the first place. The prophet Isaiah responded to Ahaz by saying this, Since you did not ask for a sign, the Lord is going to give you one anyway. And that is when we come to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then you have this whole section of Isaiah dealing with the struggle that's going on in the land and with the people of God who are under an unfaithful, unrighteous king that is, that is leading them down a path of disaster. And even in the midst of all that, God is still working his plan. So that is the background story to Isaiah 11. Now I think one of the greatest symbols of, of Christmas time, of course, other than Jesus Christ, is the tree. We have a tree right up here. It's a great symbol of Christmas. I love the tree. It's especially when it's all neatly decorated. It has all those sparkling lights and ornaments. I love to play with the lights. We have one of those little light things. I can make it do different things and my wife gets mad at me sometimes because I want to play with that and oh look at this and look at how it does that. I don't know. That fascinates me for some reason. And I know for many of us, uh, we, we like different things about the tree. We have ornaments on our tree. Many of our ornaments hold significance. 
Many of them tell a story about our, our family or about something that we were doing when we bought those particular ornaments. Sometimes we're on vacation. Sometimes we're out doing something and we, we buy an ornament. I think for us, we're almost to the point where we don't buy an ornament for the tree. We will be buying trees for the ornaments. That's, that's where we're at. But Isaiah suggests a different Christmas symbol in the opening of chapter 11. It's not a Christmas tree. It's the stump of a tree that's been chopped down. I don't think anybody would be excited to put a stump in their living room. I guess on the good side, you wouldn't have to deal with pine needles. But I don't think anyone's going to go out and start buying stumps and don't think that we're going to have a, you know, here's, look at our stump farm over here. Come pick your own stump. That's probably not going to happen anytime soon. However, the illustration is strong. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What Isaiah is saying is that Israel, God's chosen people, will suffer judgment and war. And so this line of Davidic kings that are descended from Jesse will appear almost entirely wiped out. There's going to be nothing left but a stump of what was once a majestic tree. However, the roots of that stump remain. And so from the stump, the new life one day is going to spring up a a shoot a branch that will bear fruit the lord jesus christ the son of david the true and final king one day will be born and then in verses 2 through 10 we have this this information about who he is and and about the kingdom i know i only read to verse 9 but but the information actually goes to verse 10 they inform us as to why we celebrate the birth of this child and we have something that is worth rejoicing So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to look at his qualifications in verses 1 through 2. Then, in verses 3 through 5, we will see his character. And then finally, in verses 6 through 9, we will see his kingdom. So let's get into this. First, his qualification. Please stop and think with me for a moment about this. At the close of chapter 10, everything is dead. God swings his axe and the whole evil system falls. And the picture is nothing but bare stumps as far as the eye can see. There are no branches. There are no birds chirping. There is no movement. There is no life. The world is dead. That's the picture. But then chapter 11 opens with this glorious truth that from a stump there is a little shoot that grows up. Stop and think that if you're King Ahaz, what are you thinking? Ahaz wants a strong nation to come and help defend against their enemies. And God gives this picture of help that comes from the forest of dead stumps. A shoot will spring up. Ahaz has to be thinking, big whoop de doo How does this give me any hope? Who looks into a forest of death for help? However, Isaiah is pointing to the coming Messiah King. 
Isaiah says that our hope is going to come from the line of David. God is going to send a faithful servant who will be the hope of his people. Now, here's what is interesting. This idea of hope sounds great, but for nearly 600 years, things would get worse for Israel. In other words, God is not offering a quick fix. And in fact, not long after this prophecy, there will no longer be a descendant of David on the throne. And as far as they know, the Davidic line is completely cut off. In fact, the last ruler of Judah will watch as the enemies of the people of God kill his own children and put out his eyes and carry him into captivity. So the last thing that he remembers for the rest of his life is the fact that his line has been cut off doesn't sound too thrilling does it things are going to get worse before they get better but almost 500 years after that there will be a shoot that springs up at a time when the house of david seemed to be reduced to nothing it will come to pass that a virgin who is a poor maiden in a village of despised galilee will bring forth a child by god's divine decree a branch will sprout from the stump and it will grow into a mighty tree the baby will be born into a poor family in a time when david's race is forgotten born as one who is crowded out by the busy busyness of life born in a manger because there was no room in the inn he will be brought up in a despised village there were some gleams of glory around his infancy angels show up and they herald glad tidings of his birth magi would eventually show up and worship him when he's in bethlehem but herod would try to have him killed stop and think about it this is the the deliverance that is announced to ahaz the messiah does indeed come from the stump of jesse but look at verse two do you notice what it is saying in verse two jesus will have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a way that no one else before or since ever had. It says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. And there are six characteristics that are listed that qualify him for the office. Let me list them for you. A spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. Jesus is specifically qualified for his mission by God's Spirit. In fact, he is perfectly qualified. He is perfectly qualified. If we were to read through the Gospels, we would find these descriptions of Jesus that relate us back to what Isaiah is saying here. For example, Luke says of him, He grew in wisdom and in the stature before God and man. Mark 6, 2 says, Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Jesus says of himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me in Luke 4, 18. And then towards the end of his ministry, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's in agony and is facing the cross. The time has come. The first time he will ever be separated from his father, We hear him saying to God, Not my will, but your will be done. 
And then he obediently goes to the cross and pays for our sins. We rejoice on Christmas because Jesus Christ is the perfectly qualified king as the promise as promised in Isaiah. He has no deficiencies. There is nowhere that he is incompetent. He has no blind spots. There's no gaps in his ability. He is an all-sufficient Savior, perfectly qualified by God to receive your trust, and he deserves our obedience, and he is able to save you. He is the perfect king in which we find refuge. We must understand what this is saying to us concerning hope. You see, Ahaz did not trust in the Lord. Ahaz did not hope in the Lord. Instead, he was trusting and hoping in human wisdom. And all of Israel is going to pay for it. The king to come would be nothing like Ahaz. And listen, if you are here today as a believer and you're placing your hope in stuff, if you're saying, I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus, but my hope is in stuff, you're in for a rude awakening. Because the Lord will deal with you if you are his child He will not rest. He will relentlessly pursue you because you are His. And He will not allow you to place your satisfaction in anything but Him. He will kick your legs out and force you to fall into His arms. If you find your hope or your belonging or your meaning or your delight in anything but Him, you can be sure that He will not let you stay there because He is the only true source of hope. But let me tell you another thing real quick. God has a way of pointing us to a hope that the world does not see. Just like Ahaz. To him, to Ahaz, Assyria was the answer. Why? Because Assyria looked impressive. But God says, that is not your hope. What looks good according to the world's standards is not so great by God's standards. Our hope is to be placed in that branch, in that twig that is growing out of Jesse. God uses things that look foolish to the world to confound the wise. Think about it. Just think about it. We come here on a Sunday morning. We read a book, the Bible, that is a few thousand years old. We sing songs to a Savior that none of us have ever seen. Not with our eyes, and we listen to people preach sermons, and the world says, that's dumb. That's foolish. Why why are you doing that? The world says, why would you get up on a Sunday morning and come to church and listen to some guy, in, in my case, yell at you? Why would you do that? Does that, that doesn't sound like fun. Hey, let's go, let's go listen to the pastor tell us what the, this 2,000-year-old book says in order to go out and live it in our lives. That sounds foolish. God says, that's what I use to build my kingdom. And my kingdom will never end. It looks crazy to the world, but it is God's plan to establish his kingdom. Moving on, we see, we see that, that idea that he is qualified. We see his qualification, and now we see his character. Look, uh, we see that in verses 3 through 5. Isaiah tells us about the character of Christ's rule. What Isaiah is doing is, is giving this application to the qualifications that he just listed. The picture here is designed to be one that is in contrast 
with King Ahaz. His delight will be to serve and reverence God, and his reign will be in total justice. The preeminent mark of his rule will be justice and righteousness in judgment. That's how he will judge. The glorious difference between the Lord and us is that he knows what is in man despite what we reveal on the outside, which is often misleading. He deals with the motives of the heart. He judges not by sight, but by divine insight. He is able to judge the conduct and the character of people. He doesn't judge by what is seen or heard. Compare that to our judgments. Right? We judge in ignorance. He doesn't. We don't see or hear all. And yet from our imperfect knowledge of a fact, we draw wrong and often disastrous conclusions. Somehow we think that, you know, even though we don't understand something or fully comprehend something, that somehow we can draw some sort of great conclusion about it. But God is able to see beyond the visible works, and he is able to detect what's in the heart. We judge based on prejudice. God doesn't. Oftentimes our prejudice is the result of ignorance. We see only certain sides of people. We dislike them based upon ridiculous things. We dislike them uh, because they don't look right or or we frame, frame our judgments about them according, according to how they look. The Lord sees people as they really are. He has no preconceived opinions about anybody that lead him to unworthy conclusions. We allow partiality to pervert our judgment. We use our sight and our hearing, and we judge accordingly. We approve of one person over another based on those things. Because someone may be more pleasing to us. They maybe say the right things. They may look more pleasing to us. And therefore, they win our favor. They win our flattery. Because we just like the way they look. The Lord is not won over by any of that. He doesn't judge based on your income. He doesn't judge based upon your car that you drive. He doesn't judge based upon your clothing or anything else. He is infinitely compassionate, tender, and forgiving. Without partiality, he shows no partiality. But we show partiality all the time. We allow passions to cloud our judgment. We pursue many things that absorb us, and in our pursuit of things, we become clouded in our judgment that we can't even calmly weigh the evidence that we hear. We view everything in light of false affections, and therefore we are rendered incapable of accurately beholding others in their true light, especially if they are in the way of what we are passionately pursuing or what is passionate to us. However, the purpose of Jesus was to do the will of his Father and to complete the work that he had given him, and therefore he saw people as they were. Our natural depravity hinders our judgment. Who we are, our affections, our conscience, everything about us has been perverted by our own depravity. We have a defect inside all of us that flaws our vision and our hearing. Unlike Christ, there there are no defects. When we cannot accept as 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 final judgment um, 
different things, even as the best people uh, come about and we say, well, well, I need to, I need to place a judgment on that person, even though we know nothing about them. Christ doesn't do that. He's, he's not hindered by depravity. I did this just the other day. In fact, it was last, it was yesterday. I'm driving in my car and I make a turn, right? And some guy in his Mercedes shoots over to this lane turns behind me and guns it over to this lane and I'm going into that lane because I'm following the rules of the road and he almost hits me and then he pulls up beside me and is looking at me and I made a judgment I'm like oh yeah you and your nice Mercedes go ahead and rear end me and we'll see who gets a ticket and my wife's like Josh So I, 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 we do that, right? We make judgments. We have, I have no idea what was going on in that guy's life, but I still felt free to make a judgment because I'm flawed by my own depravity. This is not to say that we should never judge anything or anyone. It's just to say that so often our judgments are flawed by our own sinful ways, and Christ is not. And this, this sets his character apart from ours. We, in fact, are frequently judging a book by its cover. We are so quick to pass judgment of people based upon hearsay and rumors or form opinions so often, far too readily, based upon what someone else said about someone. How often do we quickly dismiss the very ones that we're called to love and to serve, sometimes with some sort of self-justifying shrug, like, oh, well, big deal. King Jesus never does that. He does not look at things the way we do, nor does he look at others the way we do. He sees all the way to the truth, and nothing is hidden from his gaze. Instead, as verse 4 states, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Look at the latter part of verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The instrument that Jesus will use to accomplish all of this is the word of God. He rules by his word, he speaks, and sinners are saved, and the wicked are judged. He speaks and the spiritually dead hear his voice and new life is breathed into them and they receive it. He speaks and broken hearts are healed. One of the great grounds of joy during this Christmas season is that King Jesus who has born to rule rules by his holy word. The baby in Bethlehem, the man of Calvary, the king who is on his throne, speaks to you and I today, right here, right now, where you are through his holy word. Wow. It's incredible. Now look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah is saying that his, his character is righteous and faithful, and he is this way simply by being true to who he is. Jesus never needs to fear himself or correct himself, unlike every other human leader. 
ever that has come along. Jesus Christ is not clothed with the trappings of human pride. He has, he's not clothed with some sort of ego trip, but instead he's clothed with righteousness and faithfulness. Everything that he does is a product of his own righteousness and faithfulness. We can trust him without ever being guarded. Listen, when we decide to hold back from Jesus, what we're saying is that we are more to be trusted than Jesus is to be trusted. We are saying that Jesus is no better than Assyria or Ahaz. I need to put my trust in this thing. You know what our greatest sin is? And often it's, all, it's revealed at Christmas time. Our greatest sin is to think and act as if we are our own Savior. And to disrespect the Savior of the world who came as a baby in the manger. Sure, we have good intentions. But he has perfect judgment. Perfect power. And when we start to trust more and more than ourselves, we're in big trouble. We need to trust him more than we trust ourselves. We're just beginning to understand when we start to trust him more than us. We're just beginning to understand what it means to truly trust him. And so we have seen his qualifications. We've seen his character. And now let's see his kingdom. It's fascinating. In just two days, we're going to be remembering the birth of Jesus. However, this chapter does not simply call our attention to look back at the first coming of Jesus with gratitude, but also to look forward to the final coming of Jesus at the end of the age with joyful expectations. We sing this great song at at Christmas. It's called Joy to the World. Isaac Watts did not write that song to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It was originally written as a meditation on Psalm 98 to celebrate the return of Jesus Christ. Personally, I love the fact that when we remember the birth of Christ at Christmas time, we sing a carol that actually looks forward to his return. When the work he came to do that first Christmas is brought to completion. This is actually the picture we have in verses 6 through 9. That's a picture of the finished work of Christ. And, and the final removal of the effects of sin. I don't know if you read this, and like I am, you're just like, you're trying to envision what is going on here, because it sounds absolutely crazy. King Ahaz here is just trying to keep Judah on the map, but, but here we have a picture of what the world will be like under King Jesus. Look at the setting as we read through it. We have these dangerous animals. And domestic animals side by side. And the remarkable thing is the dangerous animals don't gobble up and eat the domestic animals. Who in their right mind would put sheep with wolves and expect there to be any sheep left? Yet we read wolves will dwell with sheep and they won't eat them. We read that leopards will lie down with goats and calves and lions. 
with young cows. Little children will lead the animals into pasture. Cows and bears will coexist with one another. Nursing children will play with cobras. What? You're going to take a baby and be like, here you go, here's a little cobra, play with this. This should entertain you for a while. Nobody does that. Nursing children will play with cobras. Children will put their hand on the viper's den and they won't be hurt. Can you even picture this? That's the blessed reign of Jesus. This is his kingdom where heaven and earth are restored and where the fullness of God's favor will rest on his people forever. Now, we must understand that the only one who can bring about this renewal of nature like this is King Jesus. He transforms the world and every square inch of the world will be his holy mountain. And we see it is a universal reign of a righteous king. Listen, so often people have been in search of a utopian society to no avail because it does not exist until one day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord and then our quest for utopia will absolutely disappear into the healing power of Jesus Christ because the reign of sin will be brought to destruction forever. Wow. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what does. Because listen, earthly revolutions promise liberation, but instead they brought oppression. But when we bow to the rule of King Jesus, he will one day lead us into a place where there is no darkness. There is no guilty conscience. There are no tears. There are no wounds. There will be no pain where your laughter will never be forced because God has restored the universe and the curse of sin has been removed in this world and the original state that has been restored comes through Jesus the King. And that doesn't happen because of the rise of religion. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus don't become angels sitting on clouds playing harps and singing in giant choirs to God forever. That's not what heaven looks like. So often we have this false view of heaven. The victory of Jesus will be a restoration of all things that are pure and holy. His kingdom is the only and final answer to every single problem in the world. Poverty, solved. Hunger, solved. Injustice, solved. Illiteracy, solved. Pains, solved. Sorrows, solved. Everything that we have created as a result of sin in our lives is cured forever. Listen, so often we have this weird picture of heaven where we think that we are just going to be sitting around a throne doing things and, and singing like, like we're just a bunch of people and here's God and we're just like this big giant choir and we're like, oh, forever. That's boring. That's not what heaven is. That's not the picture at all. That's not what's laid out in these verses. Instead, heaven will take everything that is human and restore it to its proper place. 
and everything that you do will be done for the glory of God and will be enabled by the grace of God. Suddenly those things that you thought were the greatest joy on earth will suddenly not be the greatest joy because they will have new meaning. You'll be like, what? And you'll do them for the glory of God. Here's the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. It's so glorious because of Jesus Christ. And the fullness of his kingdom is not necessarily some distant reality. All that stands between our present moment and the kingdom that's mentioned by Isaiah is the command of God. That's it. All he has to do, all God has to do at any moment is give the order. That's it. All right, Jesus, time to go. And he will come and judge and save and rule. That's it. That's all that stands. Isaiah is not telling us when this will happen. He's he's telling us who does it. This is the good news that God calls on us to embrace. And the question is, will you embrace it? There is nothing that will stop his kingdom from advancing. What I just read to you will happen. There is nothing that will stop it from happening. He's just waiting to say the word. The only question is, will you be a part of it? So, why celebrate the birth of Jesus? I want to close this morning with this. Why celebrate the birth of Jesus? Just a few days, Christmas will be here. For some of us, you'll be woken up early in the morning because your kids can't wait to open presents. Some of you will have stayed up late the night before. Because everyone is so excited for Christmas Day. Some of us will be traveling. Yes, some of us will have squabbles, fights, quarrels. Some of us will be lonely. Some of us will be hurting. Some of us will be filled with emotions that we did not expect to have on Christmas Day. All of that is true, church. But here's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. You will, will you truly remember that the birth of Jesus Christ is worth celebrating on Christmas Day? In the midst of everything that's going on, whether it be the busyness of your travel, whether it be the sorrow in your life, whether it be the pain that you're going through, whether it be the hurts that you're faced with, whether it be the joys that's going on in your home, whether it be the exuberance, will Jesus overshadow everything on Christmas Day? Everything else that's going on, will he overshadow it all? And will you celebrate the birth of King Jesus? The baby that was born in a manger was filled with the Spirit and perfectly qualified to be 
King and Savior to all of us. He reigns in righteousness and rules in our hearts based upon His Word alone. This baby who was born became the man who was crucified and the King who reigns on heaven's throne. And one day soon, He will come back again. The baby on Christmas was born to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. He will one day make all wrong, all the wrongs that ever came. He will make them right. Death will one day die because of Him. Sin will one day be removed because of Him. Sorrow will one day be dissolved because of Him. Fears will one day be stilled because of Him. Every tear that you've ever cried will one day, one day be wiped away because of King Jesus. This baby born in the manger and the world to come will one day be bright and great and glorious because of King Jesus. Creation will be perfected, real perfect peace will one day rule under the reign and rule of the prince of peace who is Jesus the final gift of Christmas will be a new creation a home filled with righteousness of Jesus Christ where we and every single saint that has ever gone on before us is trusting in Christ and will be marvelously reunited to the praise and the glory and the adoration and the worship of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the King who comes to reign. That's Christmas. I wonder this Christmas if you'll come with me and with the angels and with the shepherds and with our friends and with our family if you'll come and bend your knee on the day when we celebrate his birth before the world. King Jesus, why do we celebrate this birth? Because he's worth celebrating. There is nothing greater than knowing Jesus. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Oh, dear friend, don't you dare allow commercialism, sorrow, sin, Santa, or Satan steal away the joy that is found in the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ this Christmas. Because, listen, he is perfectly qualified. He is perfect in his character. And his kingdom will reign forevermore. That's Christmas. Let's bow for prayer. Father, Father,